This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. The University of Dallas invites you to check out their free five-episode video series, The Quest, at the link in the show notes or at udallas.edu pillar. That's udallas.edu pillar. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar Editor and Co-Founder, Ed Condon. How are you sleeping, Ed? Um, not brilliant, but uh, definitely an improvement on where I was when last we recorded this show. You have had uh, a very long week, um, and uh, you mentioned in your newsletter today that um, Mrs. Condon has been uh, ill, and um, uh, I don't think you mentioned this in your newsletter, but you have mentioned to me that um, that has meant that you have been... Um, Picking up much of the um, domestic responsibilities in addition to uh, your your work here at the Pillar. So it's and and that includes a baby, you know, in the night. So it's been, I'm sure, a great many things for you. Uh, I like to think I'm operating at peak efficiency, if if not at peak temperament right now. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Well, Ed, there's much to talk about, um, but before we talk about um, new things, I'd like to uh, revisit an old thing, um, because I would like to uh, talk a little bit more about um, declaring the penalty of excommunication for the canonical crime of heresy for pro-abortion politicians, uh, uh, for pro-abortion Catholic politicians, which we discussed to some extent um, uh, in our bonus episode, which we released earlier this week, did we not? Uh, we did. I am. People cannot see, but I'm giving you a look. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to give well, me a look. We can discuss things as we, we can have, discuss. We've things. recorded this particular topic twice already, and and broadcast it once for reasons people are aware of. If you listen and to the bonus episode, you know we had a little tete a tete about this. Would that be fair to say? I, I think it would be fair to say I lost my ever-loving mind no. halfway through the conversation and we had to re-record. Well, I have been doing some thinking about the point that you wanted to make, which is that you, you are posturing effectively that a bishop has the op- option um, to declare a, uh, a, a pro-abortion Catholic politician who consistently um, says things which are contrary to the Church's teaching on the immorality of abortion and the dignity of human life, um, to declare him to have committed the canonical crime of heresy, which um, comes along uh, with the late sententia penalty of excommunication. Um, that's your position, is it not? It is. Again, um, I, I wouldn't say this is this is not a universal truth I'm articulating. I'm simply saying it is definitely an option available in some egregious circumstance. You think that in the bag of clubs that a bishop has marked ecclesiastical discipline, this is one of the clubs that he could use depending on the lie of the fairway and the wind speed and the the uh, other golf contingencies. I'm not aware of them. Is that right? An excellent an excellent metaphor, yes. Okay, so this is one of the clubs in the bag. Um, yes. And I was, um, I ha- I was pushing back uh, on the idea that, um, I-, I was pushing back on the idea that um, a, the late intensity, a late intensity penalty can be declared or the delict of, um, uh, uh, of heresy can be declared um, by a, a diocesan bishop without um, considerable specificity about um, the nature of um, the remarks of the pro-abortion Catholic politician, that a law which restricts the free exercise of rights must be interpreted strictly, which, as you know, is a canonical principle, and therefore that we have to take the notion of heresy um, as obstinate denial or doubt of some truth to be believed with divine Catholic faith in a very um, strict way, which um, 
uh, w- which does not allow for a sort of a, any kind of a loose interpretation that the bishop has to be absolutely sure that what the person has done is obstinate is to obstinately deny or doubt um, some de- teaching of divine and Catholic faith. And so I was taking that position and saying, you know, that that one can't do such a thing wantonly. And um, and and I'd like to kind of come back and say, I having reflected more upon our conversation, um, having talked with some canonists, having reflected more. Uh, I don't think that you are, were trying to say that the bishop can do this wantonly. Um, and while I was trying to say that there are a number of sort of procedural formalities that one um, must go through before one does such a thing, um, you were trying to say that, that the mechanisms of justice can be accomplished in any uh, you know, it, it, the mechanisms of justice can be accomplished, must be accomplished, which is to say that the bishop must be sure and he must kind of try to engage with the person and all of that, but that, um, you know, it, it, he doesn't have to do that. You were pushing back on the idea that I was sort of introducing uh, a sort of extrajudicial process into the, in, into the, uh, into the affair. Is that right? I, I think so. I was particularly concerned with the, the interpretation of the situation and application of this penalty and for this crime in in an overly formalistic and specific way that sounded to me like the only way you could possibly nick someone for the crime of heresy is if you invited them in under penalty to a judicial forum and then invited them to make a public manifestation of conscience. Right. Well, I, I appreciate that, and I think that frustrated you, and here we are. Um, I still maintain, Ed, that um, because the, because this is a matter of penal law, that the law has to be um, interpreted strictly, which means that the bishop must be sure that what the person has said in a, very, in a formal way has indeed obstinately denied or doubted some teaching to be um, uh, uh, to be believed with divine and Catholic faith. It's not sufficient for a bishop to um, to declare a person has incurred the penalty of excommunication for the crime of heresy because the person has um, uh, s- said, you know, a great many things that are offensive to um, the truth and to the faith and to the dignity of human persons, un- you know, ab- about the possibility of legal protection for abortion, unless um, those things um, contain some demonstrable and verifiable evidence that the person is obstinately, you know, is denying or doubting um, some matter of divine and Catholic faith. I still want to emphasize that I think that's important for the matter of sort of the just application of the law. Um, I I do want to recognize that, um, I, having thought about it more, I, I, I agree with you, I think that obstinacy can be demonstrated. I was trying to say that obstinacy needs to be demonstrated in the course of a process. And, um, you, you know, and I think I agree with you that obstinacy can be demonstrated in uh, sort of extra procedural ways if the person is persistent and if the bishop is inviting them to meet and those kinds of things. And so if, um, you know, and a friend of ours um, pointed out for us, um, uh, a declaration from the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts of 2000, which talks about obstinacy um, being able to be verified without like a sort of procedural formality. And, and and I can appreciate that, even though this is a parallel place because it pertains not to a matter of penal law, but a matter of sacramental discipline. But nevertheless, I, I can appreciate that. And I can appreciate what you're saying. And I think it is true that if a bishop were to um, you know, have warned the person, right? Warning the person that they are in the proximate occasion of committing a delict is a necessary component of canonical justice. I think you would agree. Yes, I would. Okay. And maybe even natural justice. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Okay. So I, I would agree that if the bishop has sufficiently warned the person vis-a-vis communication with the person, again, not, um, you know, the, the best possible effort at communication with the person that's possible. And if the bishop could, in a decree, sort of outline um, 
this particular and specific ways in which the person has denied or doubted some truth to be held with divine and Catholic faith, that in such a decree, the bishop could declare the person to have committed the crime of heresy and and um, and uh, and have incurred the penalty of excommunication. Um, so I, I think that one must be very careful when applying a penal law to do it well and to do it justly as a matter of justice, not just for the for the uh, for the accused, so to speak, um, but for the sake of the good of justice itself, um, that the right response be the be the just one. Um, but for me, this whole conversation in which you and I are kind of going back and forth. So I want to concede. I, yeah, I think what you're saying is possible, and all I'm trying to emphasize is a kind of strictness there. And I think we agree about more than we disagree there. Um, I, I, I would agree. I, you know, and and again, I I wasn't trying to say last week and or last episode, whatever it was, and I I have never believed in all of the things I have said and written about this topic that this is this is a process or an action to be taken nilly willies, as my nephew would say. And I, I do think it has to be applied very, very cautiously, very specifically, very intentionally, and only in those cases in which it is especially apt and necessary. So no, it's not a, I, I would not say this is, this should not be the first club out of the bag. And I think you would agree that one element of that is that um, demonstration of a, of an, of an absence of, of a denial that, uh, you know, not, you know, not sort of a, a denial by implication. Um, or by sort of penumbra. Um, if we don't like the Supreme Court to make decisions by penumbra, we probably shouldn't like the diocesan bishop to make decisions by penumbra. So I think you would agree that there needs to be something which is really manifestly in the judgment of the diocesan bishop, a, a denial or doubt of some truth. I think you would agree with that. Absolutely. Good. And I would agree that there are other ways of just demonstrating obstinacy than a kind of process for me. So friends, <laughs> friends, Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were. I thought that was friends, comma, like you no, were about to address no, no, the audience. No. So are we pals? Oh yes. No, absolutely. <laughs> sorry, I beg your pardon. I, I when you said friends, I, you usually I, I, that's usually you're beginning to break the fourth wall and oh, talk to the listeners. So no, I was, no, I'm just I, talking to you now. Um, oh no, JD, it's just, just you and me here. As, buddy. as we have always said, our relationship is is less friendly than it is fraternal. And to, to go back to uh, to evoke an early early episode, of, I think the first episode of the Pillar Podcast did. As long as we got each other. Indeed. We got the, okay. Um, but here's the real thing that I think all of this points to. This tete-a-tete between us, this little um, disagreement between us, I think points to um, a problem that is sort of um, embedded in um, the, the penal notion of a late sententia penalty in, in, the, in the penal law system of the church. I think, you know, um, I, I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about what a late sententia penalty is, how one gets one, and and then I'm happy to talk a little bit about what I see with some of the problems with all that. Okay, sure. So a, a late sententia penalty is a is a penalty which is basically self-imposed, that it is incurred automatically uh, by the law itself, by the person committing the delict. Now, there's this is like delicts as a concept and also specifically like terms like heresy, apostasy, schism, other things in penal law and in the church, it's it's widely misunderstood and often abused as a term. It, it, this is not to say that um, someone who commits a delict or appears to commit a delict, which has a latest intensity of penalty attached to it, automatically incurs the force of the penalty. The penalty, but the penalty can be incurred ipso facto in the in the act of doing some crime, which is attached. Yes. To, so some crimes in the church have a have, are have attached to it what's called a late sententia penalty, which means in the act itself you could incur the penalty. Whereas some have what's called a ferende sententia penalty, which means if you are accused of doing this thing, you are going to have a penal process at the conclusion of which you may be found to have uh, you may be given this penalty. Is that right? 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. I mean, it, it, and it, but again, even within late intensity penalties, the law is very clear that the effects of the late intensity penalty may not actually come into force unless several criteria are met. And I would argue that in in the law is currently drawn, it, except in some in in some specific cases, very often the 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 sort of um, rules and conditions placed around the coming into force of penalties incurred late sententiae require a declaration by a bishop, which I actually think is makes it tantamount to just another kind of forende. <laughs> Sentence in a certain way, penalty. in a certain way, and that's kind of what. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So, uh, so uh, if you do a thing that has attached to it a late sententia penalty, so for example, heresy. If you do a heresy by obstinately denying or doubting some truth which is to be believed with divine and Catholic faith, um, you can by the by the act itself incur the late sententia, the penalty of excommunication late sententia ipso facto by the act itself. Excommunication is a penal a penalty in the church which. Um, by which one is prohibited from holding ecclesiastical offices, from participating in most of the sacramental and liturgical life of the church, and um, from what else, Ed? What else are the effects of, of excommunication? Uh, all sorts of uh, positions of governance you cease to be able to do. You. Um, it doesn't mean you're kicked out of the church. It means you're in the penalty box. It does mean you're in the penalty box. I mean, it, parsing the language, it does mean you're excommunicated. You're out of communion You're out of communion, church. right. You're out of communion with the church. But it doesn't um, make you an ex-Catholic. Right, exactly. It's not that we are, um, uh, it's not a sort of, a, it's not the sort of shunning by which you are no longer Amish. I, I don't well, know. Well, I don't actually, know if you're no longer you say, Amish. By, well, no, but you, I don't see, know you brought about. up shunning now, and now we have to go to the law, because in the in the old code, in the 1970 code of canon law, excommunication uh, came in two kinds. The excommunicated were specifically delineated in two kinds. There were the uh, the tolerati, mm-hmm. and both of these are, I should stress. Yeah. Latest intensity penalty and excommunication is a medicinal penalty. The purpose of it is not to punish. The purpose of it, the purpose of it, is to coerce the reform right. of the offender right. to right. bring them back into the church to affect their conversion. Um, so it's not a question of exacting um, justice upon them, mm-hmm. but in fact um, the reverse. To say you know this is a this is a well, person it's not who a question is... of, in, of exacting sort of um, unjust vengeance upon them. I mean the, the penalty itself is just well. The purpose vengeance. is not to punish. The purpose is to reform. Right. Mm-hmm. We have penalties that are designed to inflict and satisfy the demands of justice, yes. uh, which are separate. They are not medicinal. They are punitive. Mm-hmm. A- anyway, so or vindictive, uh, if you will. Vindictive, indeed. Um, but so speci- specifically about the medicinal penalty of excommunication, the 1970 code delineated two specific categories of persons who were excommunicated. There were the tolerati, those to be tolerated mm-hmm. who, you know, despite their status as an excommunicated person, were to be welcome to attend public liturgical functions, to come to Mass on Sunday, to be in the church, for people to speak to them, and to, you know, hopefully have this continuing pastoral proximity to the church and the Christian community help speed them along their way to reform. And then there was a second bracket known as the Vitandi, those to be shunned, mm-hmm. um, who were not to come to Mass, were not to be allowed in church buildings, were not to be accepted in the Christian community, or to be placed in a very real way outside the Christian community. And the purpose of that was twofold. One was the gravity of their offense required that the point be made to them as clearly as possible that what they had done was so outrageous that they really needed to think about their situation. And the other was to prevent their continued presence within the community being a scandal and possibly um, causing admiratio, wonderment among the faithful and say, well, if they're still here and they've done that, 
does that mean it's not that serious? Maybe I can do that. So I agree. And, I, and I'm grateful that you bring in that history because I think it's helpful and useful. What I meant was um, it is not perceived to be a juridic act by which one um, is uh, no longer a Catholic. It is, in fact, the juridic act of any penalty presupposes the Catholicity of the subject of the penalty because the church... Doesn't just presuppose it, it requires it because you can't punish someone in canon law unless they are a Catholic. Yeah, although as it stands, you can't punish someone in canon law unless they're a Catholic. It's, I think, I, I, yes, the I'm, church, not I'm not denying the universal legislative jurisdiction. Right. I'm simply jurisdiction saying the code, the code right. of the canons code for the, of, right. uh-huh. applies only to Latin the Catholics. The subjects liable to san- the sanctions established in the code are indeed Latin Catholics. Okay, so... Um, Okay, so so excommunication is this certain penalty um, that comes with certain sort of consequences. And um, if a person does a thing that is, um, if a person does a heresy um, uh, or some other uh, canonical crime, which comes along with the latex intensity excommunication, the question of sort of when the latex intensity excommunication takes effect or what it means sort of at, at the time of the thing having been done is complicated. It's fuzzy, right? Because it, yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not a question of you do the thing, you incur the penalty. Therefore, every you know the entire force of the law there kicks in. Every it's, juridic act you undertake is invalid. Right. Um, it, a, a sacramental. You know, there's an impact on sacramental validity. These kinds of things, um, right. because the law recognizes that for a great deal of um, a great deal of the pe- of the consequences of a latex intensity excommunication to come to the fore, the penalty has to be declared. I think is that. Do you think that's a fair summary? Yeah, I think it's a fair summary. I mean, it ha- well, okay. So it, yes and no. So here's the thing, um, and it's funny because when we finish talking about this, we're actually going to lead very neatly into the into the point I would want to make, which is the only argument I see for the retention of latex intensity penalties in the code at all. But anyway, so yeah, if you are a, if you incur a latex intensity penalty and you are aware that you have incurred a latex intensity penalty, that is, you know the thing you did was bad and you know there's a penalty attached to it, you are bound by it immediately. But the, the hard but. thing is, even that, you know that you've incurred the penalty. The subject liable to penal sanctions has acted with freedom, with some awareness of, um, uh, of the church's prohibition on a thing. So, you know, that's why when we talk about, like, for example, the latex intensity penalty of excommunication related to abortion, it is the church's judgment that often the penalty isn't occurred, incurred by a woman who undergoes abortion because... Um, because of the question of whether or not she acts in due freedom, right? Um, uh, and so right. A, a good confessor will be able to understand, you know, that a person who has undergone an abortion may have, well have done so um, with, uh, with severe restrictions on her freedom. And so even a person who knows they've done the thing itself um, can't, I think, can, I, I don't think can definitively say of themselves, I have done, I have incurred the penalty without the declaration of the bishop to, to affirm that, I, th- I think. I, I think that's probably true. Yes, and I mean a lot of the provisions of a latex intensity excommunication are are written when, in, with the in, with more than one eye on the offender being potentially a cleric or having mm-hmm. ecclesiastical office mm-hmm. or exercising governance in some way. But even all of those provisions of the things you're no longer allowed to do or allowed to exercise only after the penalty has been publicly declared do do you start incurring invalidating force on all of those things if you try to do them, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. if you are, if you commit a penalty, if you commit a crime that carries with it a penalty of excommunication, which carries with it a factor of suspension, all of this stuff, and you're, you're forbidden from exercising governments in the church, but nobody knows that you've done the thing, nobody knows that you've incurred the penalty and you continue exercising acts of judgment, well, that's bad. And you are compounding the weight upon your soul. But only after the penalty has been declared do those acts you continue to do become invalid because basically they don't want people running around 
carrying out all sorts of invalid acts with no one being aware that that's what's going on. And it creates an even bigger, and it harms people outside of the person to whom the penalty is directed. And the penalty can be declared or should be declared when the diocesan bishop um, has certitude that the thing itself has been done and has some uh, certitude about the um, the subjective elements of the thing. In other words, that the person acted in freedom and these kinds of things as well. Absolutely. And also, I mean, you know, you, you raised the issue of the application of, for example, an excommunication on, on a woman who, who's had an abortion. It, the other thing is you're not obliged to to sort of publicly bring yourself into infamy through announcing what you've done and the penalty you may or may not have incurred. So, for example, also in, in Book 6 of the Code of Canon Law in, I think it's 1352, hang on, uh, bu- 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 bu. yes, 1352, paragraph 2, the obligation of observing a latte sententiae penalty, which has not been declared and is not notorious in the place where the offender actually is, is suspended either in whole or or in part, to the extent that the offender cannot observe it without the danger of grave scandal or the loss of their good name. So this canon, 1352, paragraph 2, if you like, basically says you are not obliged to out yourself if you have committed a a horrendous sin, which is also a canonical delict, and everything, and you have incurred, or you think you've incurred a last sentence excommunication, you're not bound to sort of announce the fact to people, and you're not bound by observing the obligations attached to it, if doing so would basically um, require you making a public confession to the thing that you have done. And there's a mechanism, in fact, there are several mechanisms for your confessor to remit the undeclared penalty, the undeclared and occult penalty, right? So Indeed, which is why every good confessor should have a tidy little booklet issued by the Apostolic Penitentiary called When and How to Have Recourse to the Apostolic Penitentiary. Right, because there may be cases if it's an occult delict, um, an unknown delict reserved to the Apostolic See for which there's a penalty of of a uh, late days intensity excommunication that the confessor may need to make a recourse to the Apostolic Penitentiary. There may be um, in your diocese see something called a canon penitentiary who has faculties to remit certain undeclared latex intensity excommunication penalties. And these days, many priests themselves have many faculties to remit undeclared latex intensity excommunications themselves. So there, there are all these mechanisms. All of this, Ed, is, uh, is, interest, is uh, for us as canonists is really interesting. And I think there's even more we could say about it. But I think as a, as a, um, I think at this, I mean, my, the point that I wanted to make as we brought up all of this is that I, it is my conviction that at this moment in the life of the church, when there is, um, by the way, um, the Holy Father says sort of an anemic uh, understanding of an application of penal law in general or appreciation for penal law in general in the life of the church. when, when um, Which is very harmful, the Pope has said. Yeah, which the Pope has said is very harmful when um, there are, when many people are not... Um, uh, well-schooled or well-conversant in, 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 in this, even many clerics are not well-formed sort of in the nuances of penal law, even as it relates to the confessional, etc. It is my conviction that late sententiae penalties as a sort of genre are, are, are not useful for the church and are in fact counterproductive, that, they, that people have this idea that doing certain things makes you excommunicated and, uh, and not much more than that, and bishops rarely declare such penalties. And when they do declare such penalties, they have to go through some kind of, whatever it is, they have to go through some kind of uh, set of steps 
I, I'm reticent to call it a process, lest you feel like I'm a, 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 you know formalizing it. But they have to go through. No, you some, can say it's a process. It could be judicial or extrajudicial. Yeah, they have to go through some argue. set of steps. And when the ordinary has notice of of a person having committed a delict which has attached to a latex intensity excommunication, he still has to go through some kind of a preliminary investigation before he gets to the point in which he can declare a penalty. So there are elements of this which are. Um, in which the bishop has to go through some kinds of processes um, before the application of the, the, the declaration of the penalty or the affirmation that the delict even has been committed. And um, it seems to me that the um, that the world would be a simpler and better place um, if um, we eliminated the very notion of latex intensity penalties and these things carried with them the uh, the, the friende, friende intensity penalty, which comes after some, you know, far better described and understood, um, juridic process. I, I understand that. And that is, that is an opinion. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it <laughs> widely held. I, I would say it is, it, it is, it is a, an opinion not uncommonly held amongst the canonical it's community. Just like, why do we have them? You know? Well, I, I understand. Um, first of all, we have them. The church wants us to have them clearly because we just redid the whole book six, uh, taking decades. So to do, and they were left in and they were left in not ignorant of the arguments that you've just articulated for taking them out. So it's they're there not as a anachronism right, yeah, or a holdover. They, they are been, consciously they included. They could have been cut out at the time of the promulgation of the new book. Now, six, no, no doubt. I would say two things. First of all, saying there's a there's bad formation and bad education around penal law in the church is not, to my mind, a compelling argument for saying therefore the law needs to change. Um, that's that. Yeah, I, I I just don't. That's the that's not sound legal reasoning to me. Um, I think. We do need better education, and we need far better uh, and more committed praxis to penal uh, law and penal praxis in the church, and the Holy Father has written as much. Uh, what I would say in defense of latex intensity penalties, and again, I, I am not a full-throated supporter thereof. I, I am sensitive to the arguments you've just made. I do not necessarily disagree with all of them or um, even disagree with the ones that you make that I do disagree with uh, particularly strongly, but I do see some counter arguments for their retention. The, the first is that we would quickly, I think in many cases fall into a situation because as you have said, penal law is rarely practiced in many places in the church where penal law just lapsed and practically didn't exist. That the application of a latte sententia penalty often achieves the primary medicinal end of its function, even if it doesn't often get declared in such a way that its external application um, is carried into force fully. That it pricks the conscience of the individual, that even people with only a passing understanding of the church's teaching and law often will be at least peripherally aware that the thing they have done is so serious that it carries with it some kind of excommunication. And that may, not just may, has in many, many cases driven them to the confessional to seek proper counsel and spiritual advice and resolving their situation. So it does have that medicinal function. It probably does. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it does. Do you think there are other ways in which that could be accomplished? Possibly. I'm just saying that's one of the things that latex intensity penalties do do, and it's worth remembering. The second thing I would argue is it's a service to public justice in some cases, um, because tied up with, as we've just referred to in part, tied up with the whole notion of um, the the force of a latex intensity excommunication coming into play, you know, when, when the prohibition becomes so active that if you try and do things that you're prohibited from doing because you're excommunicated, they become invalid and things like that. Um, 
only happen when the matter is public and has been publicly declared so and tied up on the whole idea of well when do they start becoming activists tied up to you know the no- the notoriety of the crime and things like that i would argue that latte sententia penalties create an issue of public justice that it is reasonable for for example a promoter of justice in the diocese to receive questions from the faithful of a particular community saying hey we appear to have this person doing something that seems very bad to us and it looks a lot like this crime Um, and if they have done that then they would seem to have incurred this penalty but there is no clarity on the situation and it is the bishop's function to declare such a penalty if it has been incurred so could we please have some resolution on this circumstance and it creates if you like i think legitimate um standing for questions about especially public acts by especially public individuals within the community. And it creates a public accountability mechanism and a way in which the people of God in a particular Christian community can ask their bishop for justice. Not to say you need to punish this person, but to say we have a question here. Could you resolve it? And you don't think that can be accomplished through an administrative penal process or a trial? If you had to go through an administrative penal process before excommunicating someone for heresy, no, it's what, not that what would you be can't... lost? What would be lost is the standing of the community to ask for the resolution of a thing, to say, has this penalty been incurred by this person? We are asking because if it has, that affects our life as people around. Why can't we ask around. that just because we know what the delicts of the church are? Well, like, it, why do we need it to be late intensity to be able to ask that? Subject to your correction, if there isn't the question of a latte sententia penalty being incurred on incurred by someone who for example has a um, an ecclesiastical office or exercises the power of governance the community over which they exercise all of these things wouldn't have standing in a canonical court to raise the question they would be told this is none of your business yeah i guess i mean i i, I hear what you're saying it strikes me as being extremely it strikes me as being extremely theoretical it seems to me you're saying um, in order, you're, the good of this one thing, which seems arcane uh, to other people, is that it plays, it, it, uh, it enables this other process or petition, which is also arcane and ill-used by most people. And so that seems to me to be mostly, uh, it, it seems to me to be an internally coherent argument um, that is not relevant to the contemporary experience of the life of the church. And so what I'm saying is there may be better ways in the contemporary experience of the life of the church to skin that cat. And I'm, I'm open to hearing them. I, again, this is not a hill I would choose yeah. to die on. Yeah. I'm simply saying I can see some utility. Especially because, you know, even what's funny is most Catholics who call for the, for the excommunication of a pro-abortion Catholic politician do so not with your argument about heresy, but do so in relation to uh, a different uh, crime, which carries with it um, the latest intensity communi- uh, penalty of excommunication, which is to say the canonical crime of abortion. Many Catholics say Biden, Cuomo... Pelosi et al. ought be excommunicated because of their um, facilitation, their, their perceived facilitation or, or complicity in um, in abortion. And most candidates would say, uh, indeed, you need to be sort of um, uh, proximately uh, uh, um, causative, uh, contributory to a particular abortion rather than sort of setting the conditions by which one might happen. And so that's not, you know, the, they would not conter- conc- uh, incur that penalty. And I suspect you would say that as well. I don't I think absolutely you would. would. That, you know, I, I don't know no, anybody who that would yeah, say I have yeah. not seen any any coherent canonical case for charging any pro-abortion Catholic politician for incurring the penalties attached to the canonical prohibition on the procurement of an abortion through their political acts. But when Catholics ask questions like that, why isn't Cuomo Biden at all excommunicated because of his complicity in abortion? I, I, I do not generally observe that it is bishops who are giving 
in answer, I generally observe that it is us and people like us uh, who are giving an answer to that, who are explaining the law. To, so it is not my experience that when the people of God have this question, it take it, it, it manifests in the judicial forum and the bishop response. You know, that is not my experience in any way whatsoever. Rather, it is to say that um, when the people of God have this question, bishops tend to answer a different question, something about their judgment regarding kind of 915 or tend not to answer the question. People tend to get frustrated about that, and then you and I tend to write an explainer, or I think we've both written about this in various um, secular newspapers and these kinds of things. Like, that's how I see it actually playing out. So I'm not sure that I think that the argument that people have standing to raise this question in a judicial setting is all that meaningful. You may be right. Again, I'm not a hell I'm going to die. Okay, fair enough. The first one about the deterrence factor I think is an interesting argument, and I appreciate it. I don't know that it would change much if we said these things are incurred with a ferendes intensity penalty and uh, rather than a latest intensity penalty. And the reason, well, but you're never going to get a ferendes intensity penalty in some of the cases that bear. No bishop in the world is ever going to convene a penal process and declare and impose a penalty of any kind, let alone excommunication, <laughs> on a woman who has no, no, committed no, 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 an abortion. No, no. Right. It's I, never going to happen. Yeah, I think so. You, you either have to does. remove that canon and pen, uh, as a delict from the code, or, or you have to have that it's a, not pertaining to the woman and you know, it's not the code's intention for it. Well, fine. Yeah, that too. But I'm saying basically you in this, that's all you've got is you've got latte sententia because nobody else is going to impose it. If the law itself doesn't impose it, it's not going to happen. And also there are a whole other swathes. Yeah. No bishop is, I, I mean, you started laughing when I said no bishop is going to convene a penal process and um, <laughs> impose a penalty. I, yes, I, 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 I stand by that in, in general to a degree. And I suppose I, the Holy Father has affirmed that as well. And so yeah. if, the per, if the thing about the penalty is that even if you didn't incur the penalty, as I think the church would say, most women who undergo abortion do not incur the penalty, even if, because of these questions of freedom, even mm-hmm. if you didn't incur the penalty, um, the fact that you're aware of the penalty you say is a thing which, which might impel you, prick the conscience and impel you to the, to the confessional. Yes. I hear that. I wonder if simply declaring the immorality of the thing, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about pastoral theology and people, the way that people process these things, but I, I, so I genuinely don't know, but I hear that. But there, you raise an interesting question that I'd like to discuss when we return uh, to the podcast from this word from our sponsors. This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas. It is the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. Some of you may know that the University of Dallas has recently launched a free video series called The Quest, which you can watch at the link in the show notes or at udallas.edu slash pillar. The Quest is a five-episode documentary series about discovering your purpose and living it with courage. Five episodes, discovering your purpose, living it with courage. Begin your quest at udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. And we're back, everyone. Welcome back to the Pillar Podcast. The podcast brings you great Catholic conversation each week. And we have been talking about uh, late sententiae and ferende sententiae excommunications. And Ed uh, reminded me over the break, Ed, Ed claims that uh, uh, that we had not planned to discuss that particular topic. There, there, there were three things we were going to talk about in this episode, and that was not one of them. And we're now more than halfway through the well, show. I, I, remember, I have no problem with that. It's a lovely conversation. I enjoyed having it. I I'm think, sure it's great I think radio. People are enjoying I'm it. just pointing out this is how this we is get how off track. track. I remember, if I may if I may be so bold, I, I have the recollection of talking with you and saying we should talk more about this and latest intensity penalties and friendly intensity penalties. I, I remember telling you that, so I don't know. Your some... impression of my wife is getting sharper and sharper. <laughs> I must 
I must remind you that oh just because God. you said it out loud oh in an empty room doesn't goodness. mean I was there I, to hear it. I, okay. Oh, you, the things you think you've told me, it's like a tree falling in the forest, JD. If I'm not there to hear it, it doesn't make a sound. Oh my goodness. Okay. Here's what, here's what I want to talk about. Um, on May the 12th, we're recording this show on Friday, May the 13th, but on uh, May the 12th, in a letter dated May the 12th, signed by, uh, organized by, I think, by the National Right to Life Committee, and then signed by a lot of uh, leaders of various pro-life apostolates and um, uh, pro-life kind of intellectuals and uh, Archbishop Laurie, and maybe there's some other bishops on here too, I don't know. Anyway, like a, a, a lot of people signed, uh, more than 70 people signed a letter yesterday, a kind of open letter to state legislatures um, that affirmed that these pro-life uh, lawmakers, many of which are the leaders of sort of state pro-life organizations, et cetera, et cetera, you get the idea, that these, uh, excuse me, these pro-life activists and lobbyists um, did not wish to see um, laws which would um, criminally sanction women uh, who undergo abortion. It was a letter that was written to uh, um, emphasize, affirm, and reassure um, uh, to counter a narrative, um, which uh, to counter a narrative which has said that um, pro-lifers are interested in um, punishing women, imprisoning women, jailing women who, for undergoing abortion, m- mothers, um, you know, who undergo abortion, um, and. Uh, and this letter was meant to counter that narrative by saying, um, the fight for the right to life is a people's fight for its existence and its continuity. It's a country's fight for its survival and its future. The right to life cause is not the concern of only a special few, but it should be the cause uh, of all those who care about fairness and justice, loving compassion, liberty uh, with law. Our charges movement has not strayed from those words. They're quoting someone. Criminalizing women is antithetical to this charge. We will continue to oppose legislative and policy initiatives that criminalize women who seek abortions, and we will continue to work for initiatives that protect unborn children and policies that provide and strengthen life-affirming resources for abortion vulnerable women. They're aiming to just push back on the idea that pro-lifers intend to um, yeah, sanction, criminally sanction women who undergo abortions. Right. And I mean, it's it's worth noting that, you know, we talked on a previous show about the, the, the number of states, I think it's 12 or 15, who have so-called trigger laws, many of which uh, were, were existent state laws or state constitutional provisions, which predated Roe v. Wade and sort of went into abeyance and would be reactivated by the repeal of Roe v. Wade. Um, to the best of my knowledge, nowhere in this country when abortion was illegal previously uh, was there provided for penalties for the woman who underwent an abortion. That uh, I'm subject to correction here. Maybe there's one exception I've missed. But as far as I'm aware, it was never the case in this country, even when abortion was universally illegal, that the woman was subject to penal sanction. It is my observation that most um, most people right now who are saying pro-lifers want to uh, imprison women for undergoing abortion uh, are doing so as a kind of um, um, scary theater, right? To uh, to to well, they're the same sort of lunatics who are saying people who are pro-life and want to see abortion made illegal would also like to ban interracial marriage. Right, exactly. I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? And and the people who are saying pro-lifers want to, yeah, say, see women in jail for undergoing abortions or pro-lifers are going to advocate that women who have miscarriages go to, you know, go to prison. It's, 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 uh, it's fear-mongering. It's sort of a media th- exploitative theater and these kinds uh, of things. I think you're being generous. I think it's slander. Yes. I think it's deliberate misinformation. I think it's deliberate misinformation as well. Okay, fine. So that's what's happening there. It's you know, it's just performative. Um, but, you know, a, a person said to me the other day, as true as I think that is, um, if pro-lifers say that abortion is murder, um, what is the argument against 
um, criminally sanctioning all those who are involved in the mur- murder of an unborn person. And um, oh, can I take a cut at that? Yeah, I just wanted to say I think it's a question like worth discussing. What is the rationale for this idea that uh, you know if if we say that abortion is murder, which we do, and if we say that an unborn person is um, an innocent human you know person, what is the rationale for this? And you are champing at the bit with a with a, I, some I, thoughts I about would that. disagree immediately with saying abortion is murder. I don't okay. say that. All right, abortion can be murder. Okay, I, uh, but I would not. I do not myself say all abortion is murder, and I would not counsel anyone else to say all abortion is homicide. All abortion is the taking of an innocent human life. Um, calling it murder, murder is not, you know, the murder is like heresy. You can't just throw the word around. It <laughs> yeah. has a uh-huh. legal meaning. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It ha- there are gradations of homicide and there are gradations of, of possible um, sanction in law for gradations of homicide. And there's a difference between murder in the first and vehicular manslaughter. There's, you know, these, it is not the case to say that every taking of an innocent human life is murder. Isn't murder that, the unlawful and premeditated killing of a, one human being? Right, but you've just, you, you've, you've gone, you've immediately said premeditated, which is the, the inclusion of another thing. And you, we talked a little bit before the break about the and significant no moral. And accidentally conducts an abortion, right? No, but if you're talking about, for example, the mother here, ah. if we are dealing with significantly restricted moral freedom. Ah, so you're saying that that premeditation for the sake of the mother is often significantly um, re- restricted by uh, Im- impediments to a free act of the will. Or even, yeah, sometimes there's outright coercion. So no, I don't, I don't like to speak about um, every person involved in every abortion having committed murder, because I think that is legally imprecise and I think it's unhelpful and I think it's exclusive of the kind of uh, nuance and sensitivity around the the personal realities of many women who seek abortion. And I think and you're right. I'm glad that you make this distinction and it's a good one it's, uh, and it's a good answer to the question. I think now, if you want to say every abortion doctor is guilty of murder. I'll hear that argument all day long because they are turning up <laughs> right. to work mm-hmm. all day with the right. premeditated, with the premeditated intention, of, intention of killing another human being, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. no, mm-hmm. talking about the doctors, that's one and thing, I don't even but I don't like doctor, to say every person. I think if the doctor is even in extreme denial, I don't even think he has to consider the unborn person to be a human being to commit the act of murder. If he if he lives in some kind of denial where he says this is a different kind of creature, he's simply wrong about that. And so oh, that that's wrongness not an argument at all. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. no, every genocide in the world has been. I mean, the, one of the legal criteria of genocide in international law is the the dehumanization of the victims first. So right. every every genocidal lunatic begins by saying, "Well, these aren't people I'm killing." But it is the case to go back to this other question and why it is that pro lifers say it is the case that um, women who go undergo abortions do so. Um, with you know, un, with a high degree of uh, are highly likely to have been um, coerced or um, faced a, a panoply of significant pressures which um, impede a free volitional human act. I mean, I think we would simply say that is um, you know that is demonstrably true that that yeah. many women who undergo and and not to be sort of sensitive to not to recognize that not even sort of be sensitive but not to sort of take that into account in consideration of justice is um is silly i mean it's ridiculous because it's a yes. it's a manifest fact does that mean that every woman um who uh who undergoes an abortion does so um coerced or pressured no i think it the percentage is staggeringly high because our economic system expects to income, you know, because women are penalized economically for having children because there are any number of family dynamics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, I think that the, the amount of women who undergo some, co- who undergo coercion or uh, impediments to 
free human moral acts at the time of an abortion is, is, is staggeringly high. But do I think that every single woman who undergoes an abortion does so without human freedom? I don't think we can say that. Um, so there might be some people who would say, and I've heard from people who would say, well, perhaps the law, you know, people who are who would say, well, perhaps, you know, there ought to be a, a, a test, so to speak. You know, women ought to be not be crim criminally sanctioned if there's some demonstration that they underwent coercion or didn't have human freedom, but be potentially subjects of penal sanctions if they don't demonstrate that. The reason why that is a staggeringly bad idea, a horrible idea that sort of women should undergo trials by which they could demonstrate that they were coerced um, and therefore not be, you know, uh, criminally sanctioned for abortion, is that a woman who is coerced um, or faces domestic, you know, the threat of domestic violence or other serious th threats to her dignity and freedom to undergo an abortion um, will be no less safe should she make an argument to that effect, um, you know, in some public setting. Like it is effectively asking people to put themselves in harm's way to defend themselves. And so it's, it's, a, it's a, as a matter of sort of j justice to the class of persons called women um, and the, and the sort of potential harm of that sort of thing, it, it's fundamentally unjust to uh, put someone in a situation where they would have to do that. Don't you think? Yeah, I would broadly agree with that. So I just want to talk about that because I think, you know, um, th this conversation is going to continue that pro-lifers want to sanction women. And I do think that the, I have heard people ask, well, why not? And it seems to me that the, this issue of human freedom that you raise in the definition of murder is central to this question. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I've, I've, I, I, I flinch every time I see on um, any kind of social media or to pro-life demonstrations thing, signs or sloganeering that say, you know, all abortion is murder. It's just like this. It's just, I, I it's understand just what you're trying to say. The reality. Yeah. I, I understand what they're trying to say, mm -hmm. which is they're saying is they, they, they are using, I believe murder as a shorthand for the taking of an innocent human life, but those two are not synonymous. And it, it opens us up to exactly the kind of, um, misinformation and counter argumentation that you know we've been drawing attention to to say that you know well if you're if you're against abortion what you really want is to to throw mothers in jail it's like no that's you know well and if you call abortion murder then what are you going to do um in in states that have the death penalty for murder are are, are pro-life people saying well we should we should execute women i mean that right. is the absolute antithesis of a pro-life right. position right absolutely okay um, would you like Edward, uh, to talk about, uh, Cardinal Zen? <laughs> sure. If we, if we have time left, I think it's worth, um, mentioning. Cardinal Joseph Zen was arrested this week in Hong Kong. Uh, and uh, you would like to talk about it. I, well, I consider this to be pretty important news in the I life do of the too. church. Yes. As do I. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. I say Cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church, Cardinal Joseph Zen Zekung, uh, the 90-year-old Bishop Emeritus once removed at this point uh, of Hong Kong, was arrested by Chinese or Hong Kong National Security Authorities on Wednesday and was released overnight uh, thereafter on bail. And he is facing charges, I'm told, of collusion with foreign powers, which as a member of the College of Cardinals, and given that the Holy See is considered by the Chinese government to be a foreign power, often a hostile foreign power, um, I would say he is almost by dint of his status in the church required to collude with foreign powers under uh, the definitions of Chinese law. So just be aware of that. But Catholic I don't think bishops. that's what they're talking about to you. No, that's from what I've understood. I mean, I don't they think haven't they're talking about his engagement with the Holy See. No. Well, no, but I, that, that argument's there to be made. I'm just saying. That argument right. is there to be made. Uh, but no, it's my understanding talking to people on the ground that 
uh, although the prosecution hasn't exactly laid out its case yet, because, you know, why would you? Uh, that actually, because Cardinal Zen was arrested at the same time as uh, two other very prominent uh, pro-democracy advocates in Hong Kong, one of them a very prominent human rights lawyer, one a, um, one a singer, a popular singer, uh, all three of whom are three of the five trustees of this uh, charity, this nonprofit that existed in Hong Kong. They had to shut it down in 2021, I think, because it came under consistent pressure from the government, the function of which was basically to support people who were being charged with political crimes in the wake of the 2019 public demonstrations against the extradition bill. And then we had the national security law brought in 2020 and so on and so on. Um, and so as I've understood it, the the case of the prosecution is that they are going to argue that donations to this nonprofit were coming in part and even primarily from sources outside of Hong Kong and outside of China, you know, foreign donors effectively, and that some of the donations were coming from non-state actors that could be tied directly to governments, including the U.S. government, which if that is the case, then under the terms of the national security law of 2020 in Hong Kong, um, the the defendants are facing some serious problems in court. And this is not a this is not a light matter. Um, the Holy See has finally broken its silence on Hong Kong as a result of the arrest of Cardinal Zen. Uh, previously, I think the last time someone at the Secretary of State said the words Hong Kong out loud or last summer when Archbishop Gallagher said, why don't we talk about Hong Kong? Well, because we don't think it would make any difference if we did. I thought he um, said that about um, human rights. I thought it was in the context of Hong Kong, but I thought he was asked about human rights. Uh, the genocide of the Uyghurs, and he said, we don't think that it would make a difference if we condemn them. No, he was specifically asked about civil liberties in oh, Hong Kong okay. as well. Thank, oh, you're right. Thank, thank you for clarifying that. I forgot. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's true that um, Archbishop Gallagher also indicated that he, the Holy See didn't speak out about the genocide being committed against the Uyghurs on mainland China because they also didn't think that it, it would make any difference if they did, mm-hmm. which um, rather, I think, is starkly refutes the entire premise of moral witness, but never mind. Um However, they did manage to cobble together a sentence and a half response to Cardinal Zen's arrest in which they said they were um, monitoring it with closest attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yahoo. Uh, the Diocese of Hong Kong put out their own statement saying that they were extremely concerned for the safety of Cardinal Zen mm-hmm. as well they should be and as I certainly am. Mm-hmm. Uh, and reiterated that, they, that um, the, the church in Hong Kong is law-abiding and continues to uh, enjoy and hopes it will continue to enjoy the basic religious freedom provided by Hong Kong's basic law, which is sort of their civil rights constitution uh, under the terms of the one party, two systems agreement, which is being steadily eroded by all of these changes brought in um, in recent years. So Cardinal sends out on bail. We don't know when he will be due back in court. We don't know how quickly they will prosecute his case. My strong suspicion is that Cardinal Zen is now effectively a hostage. Yeah, and the diplomatic negotiations between Beijing and the Holy See over the Vatican-China deal and other things as well. Diplomatic representations yeah. to Taiwan and other things that we've talked about on this show. Exactly. So I would be, I mean, I am I could be wrong. They, the Chinese could go a completely different way here. And the Hong Kong government under its new chief executive, who formally takes over in June, I think, uh, John Lee, a Catholic, uh, might decide he wants to impress the mainland government with his zeal for national security, which he has done in his previous roles in the Hong Kong administration, and try and make sure that Zen faces trial immediately and is convicted and goes to jail. It's equally possible that the government might lean over his shoulder and whisper in his ear and say, we'd really like it if this just sort of, you know, 
was slow walked until at least October when we had the Vatican signature on a re-upping of the Vatican-China deal. That to me seems mm-hmm. more likely at the moment, but we will see. And to be clear, um, it, it is not, um, it, it's certainly not my position, I don't think it's your position that Cardinal Zen is uh, arrested right now on trumped up charges, that it's probably likely that he, it's at least possible that he did violate the law, and it's at least possible that this charity that he was working with was getting money from even U.S. government-affiliated sources. It's at least possible for the sake of bailing out pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong. I mean, it, whether the law is just, whether, you know, the, those are other questions, but it is at least possible, it seems to me, that Cardinal Zen violated the law. And, and given sort of the stakes of this uh, for Hong Kong, for Lee, for Beijing, it, it seems to me unlikely that Cardinal Zen would have been arrested if all they had was a, was a cannoli in their hand, so to speak. Uh, that's possible. I, I Again, I'm not familiar enough with the structuring of the nonprofit in question to be able to give an opinion on the role of trustees and the oversight they had over the workings of the thing and all of that stuff. The last time I talked to Cardinal Zen about this particular charity, which I did in a phone call with him uh, over a year ago was the last time he mentioned it to me. And they were what they were trying to do with it was they were trying to send moon pies to prisoners in jail. <laughs> Uh, for Chinese New Year, mm-hmm. and they had been they they shut the whole thing down because the government got very angry with I, I them think about mean that. Moon cakes, right? Chinese moon cakes, not the um, the sticky American confection. Oh, is that sorry? Moon cakes. I don't. <laughs> why so, is there a different thing? Yes, in America? there's a different thing that I don't think they were trying to send. I'm sorry to add a bit of levity here, but I just I just couldn't. I, I, a moon pie is like a is like a um, there's marshmallow and graham cracker and dipped in chocolate and it's a big sticky southern confection, and it just seemed unlikely to me. They wanted to send Lunar New Year moon cakes, didn't they? That would be more culturally yes, appropriate. That, that, sorry, that that is what they were trying. <laughs> because to send. if they were sending like this sort of hallmark confection of the American South uh, to prisoners in China, they would have you know, put a red flag on themselves. They would have put a target on their own backs uh, if they wanted to disavow any sense of sort of Western collaboration. But that's not what they were doing. They wanted to send lunar moon cakes, a, a, a traditional Indeed. Chinese bit. Okay. Sorry. Yes. No, no, please. Um, so anyway, I, I, I'm not in a position having not having not available to me the the corporate structuring documents of this of this now closed nonprofit to to be able to say what exactly the remit of the trustees were and what exactly they are responsible for um, but I will say this which is I am familiar with the terms of the 2020 national security law imposed on Hong Kong by the mainland government and I can tell you that just about anything is illegal under that mm-hmm. yeah. um, walking around town with the wrong color umbrella will get yeah. you busted for sedi- for sedition, sedition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know it is you know so I, I don't know how uh, uh, where the line is between a you know uh, a true violation of the law, even if the law is unjust, versus trumped up charges. I mean, arguably, every national security charge in Hong Kong right now is a trumped up charge. I mean, well, there's it's a trumped up prosecute. law, right? I mean, like, so the the yeah, issue is the purpose you know, of the law is to criminalize free speech. Right, that is so, the purpose of the law. Right. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's a. I think that's a good distinction. Is it a trumped up charge? Is he technically guilty of violating the law? The law intends to criminalize free speech and you know it's is so broad that it could be um very broad but he what he's charged with is a particular thing which is to say colluding with foreign agents and and it is possible indeed that this charity was receiving funds that were from foreign agents and these kinds of all i'm saying is you know it, it um they probably arrested him on a thing that they had him for and so um you know the 
it, it seems unlikely to me of all the outcomes, it seems unlikely to me that Cardinal Zen um, will be acquitted. Now, is it a kangaroo court? Is it a, is the law Trump? You know, all of those things. Sure, a- absolutely. But in that context, all I'm saying is of the possible outcomes, the one I don't see is Cardinal Zen, you know, walking out of a courtroom with a V for victory symbol a, a year from now. Oh, I, I, no. Right. No chance. Right. Zero. Yeah. Zero. Mm-hmm. The, the, the national security forces in China and in Hong Kong um, don't arrest people that don't intend to charge. And they don't charge people they right. don't think they're going to. That's gonna what I was saying. Get. That's what I was saying. Yeah. There's, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, puts the Vatican in an extremely tricky position because if eventually Cardinal Zen is convicted, and again, he is 90 years old, virtually any prison sentence could end up being a life sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are they going to, how are they going to respond? Are they going to respond by saying the Vatican has full faith in the, in the justice of the Hong Kong criminal system? Right. Because if they say that, they're either lying or they're fools. Because I do not have full confidence in no one who's read the national security law could possibly have full confidence in the justice of um, Hong Kong's national security apparatus and legal system right now. Um, And also, if they say that and basically take either actively or passively through silence, the position of affirming the legal justice of Cardinal Zen being convicted and imprisoned, uh, they will basically be telling every cleric, including every bishop in Hong Kong and and on mainland China, you're on your own. Don't count on us to support you even the littlest bit, which is exactly what the Chinese government want. It's what the Chinese government have wanted out of the Vatican-China deal from the very beginning. It is what they have wanted by making part of the terms of the um, Vatican-China deal that bringing the underground church above ground and everything else required all of the clergy to sign up, sign this oath of fidelity and join the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association part of which involves them expressly affirming the supremacy of Communist Party authority and doctrine over church authority and teaching, um, which several clerics, including bishops, have refused to do on the grounds that that would be totally against church teaching. Um, And they have been harassed, imprisoned, uh, arrested, disappeared in some cases. So, uh, you know, that's what the Chinese government has wanted. It is what the Chinese Communist Party has wanted, is the total... Um, subjugation of the church and the faith in China to the Communist Party. And if the Holy See is unable to speak in defense of Cardinal Zen and the basic civil liberties, which are guaranteed in Hong Kong's basic law of speech and of religious freedom, then, you know, I, I, I don't know what else there is to say. That, that, is, that is the ultimate victory for the CCP, and it is the ultimate defeat for um, the church in China. Well, in the short term, it, in the short term, it is the ultimate defeat. Sure, in the short term. But I mean, also, it's a huge defeat going in the longer term for the faith in China. I mean, Cardinal Zen said this to me in an interview I did with him, I think, in 2019, um, where he said that the problem with the Vatican-China deal is all the Catholics in China understand what's going on. And they have, in many cases, security forces in China or government officials in China saying, we're bulldozing your church, we're arresting your priest, and the Vatican is on our side. The Vatican has told you, you have to obey the party. Um, it's telling them all this. And Cardinal Zen said, this is bleeding through. The Chinese people understand this. And one day there will be a China without the Communist Party. And the the church will not receive a seat at the table when it's discussing its new future because they will be viewed as collaborators, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I, I, I recall that. That is... Uh... That is a real danger for the mission of the gospel in China and for the sort of status of Christians there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, 
We're recording this show on Friday, May the 13th. The U.S. bishops have requested that we pray the rosary on this day for uh, a culture of life in this country, for the end um, uh, of, uh, for the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and uh, for the for the needs of women who might experience pressure or coercion um, to have an abortion. And uh, I'll be doing that, Ed. How about you? I certainly will. Okay. Uh, well, uh, we should get to it. And uh, friends, we will be back next week. Uh, this episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. The University of Dallas invites you to check out their free five-episode video series, The Quest, at the link in the show notes or at the uh, udallas.edu slash pillar. Check out uh, the University of Dallas's free five-episode video series, The Quest, at udallas.edu slash pillar. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner uh, and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is Kate Oliver and we'll be back next week.